Hi everyone, it's time. My name is Nicole Alvarez, but you know, we are friends now. Welcome to the K-Rock DTS Sound Space. May I introduce Mr. Billy Corgan. That's elbow. That's elbow. Cool. Hi, Billy. Hello. Thank you for coming. Oh, thank you. I'm sitting here and I, it's, it's weird because I know I don't know you, but it feels like I do because you have been a part of my life my entire life and I typically don't speak for others, but I think I can speak for the whole room when I say that your body of work, your entire body of work is sewn into the fabric of our lives and that's, it's true. And that's a powerful position to be in. Do you ever stop and think that there are millions of people that carry your songs around as if they were their own? and they, they unlock our memories, they act as friends to us. Is that something that is terrifying or humbling? Um, in the way that you ask it, yeah, absolutely. I mean, because, <laughs> um, uh, you know, everything from tattoos to people getting married to people having kids to mourning a lost loved one, and when they include your music, it's a really tremendous honor. I think the, the difficulty for the band has been that um, even despite all the success that we've had, we've always had other people try to define who we are and who we aren't. And I think until that journey is kind of done, we're still kind of in the fight okay. of, you know, for lack of a better way to put it, like this is the Smashing Pumpkins because for everything that we've done, there's been twice as much energy around what we didn't do or what we should have done. Um, and I think over time, especially with the new record, we've sort of proven that our way is the best way for us. We understand why it's not the best way for everybody who wanted Siamese Dream 2 or whatever. But for us, that's why we're still going because we trust each other and that musical language and that journey has always kind of kept us going. Um, and even when we played the Hollywood Bowl the other night, I mean, we played a bunch of new songs and that's really important to us. Um, to not, uh, you know, and I think it's very much a message of 2022 and to not let other people define what your life is, who you are as a person, whether it's your sexuality or your gender or who you love. Don't let other people tell you who you are. You be you. And ever since I was a little kid, I've heard, I'm doing it wrong. You're too weird. You know what I mean? It's like, it's always been part of my life. Yeah. I don't remember a time w when everybody was just like, hey, you're cool the way you are. It was always something was wrong with me. And that extended into the music uh, world. And so I think if you gave us truth serum, we're really, really, really humbled, um, particularly here in Southern California, by the love that the fans here have always shown us, always, from the very beginning, from the earliest days of the band. It touches us. Um, you know, that gig the other night that we played, I mean, it really meant a lot to us. I um, want to talk about that gig. So the Smashing Pumpkins, it was the last show of the tour. The Smashing Pumpkins played a stunning show at the Hollywood Bowl, 17 magical songs, including We Only Come Out at Night, which was a surprise. I've been running after that song my entire life. Um, and the, the night was perfect. Like, the weather was perfect. The set list was perfect. And one of the happiest surprises was seeing how multi-generational the crowd was. Mm -hmm. Do you have any expectations as far as what you're going to see when you look out when you go on stage these days? Or do you just, fuck it, I'm just going to go and see what happens? Well, it really depends on where we are. Because certain parts of America, it's very much like, oh, it's the 90s. Yeah. And, 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 and I, and, it's very and much I, not. And I get, no, but I'm saying I get that. Because um, for some people, that 
culture, let's call it Gen X culture, it never had like a second act, even though obviously here in Southern California, New York and Chicago, whether it's Blink-182 or Green Day, bands of our generation have had second and third acts. For many people in the country, they still see us as an anachronistic sort of postcard from another time. And so sometimes we walk on the stage and you're like, oh, this is that crowd. Yeah. And you can feel it beforehand? Oh, you can feel it. Yeah. Yeah, because you'll play something like, um, like the fourth song in our set, I believe, is Seer, which is from our last record, um, the Seer album. And I, I go off mic and I do my little disco moves and I, I, I literally look at 40-somethings like, with this, what, what is, is happening? happening to Billy? What is happening? <laughs> what is happening to Billy right now? Like, I'm comfortable in the goth thing and the guitar and the weirdness, but like, you dancing and singing to a disco song is just too weird for me. But how cool is it to push people like that outside of their comfort zone? Do you get any gratification out of that? Because I think it's fun. I think if you're in music and you're not pushing boundaries, I mean, why are you in music? Exactly. It's called the arts for a reason, you know? Um, I once had a very powerful person in the music business, right actually right down the road at the Chateau Marmont, circa 98, say, in an English accent, you know, Billy, it's the music business for a reason. <laughs> you know, don't forget it, you know? Don't forget it. And um, that's cool, too, you know? Um, it's what makes the world go round. But for us, it, there was never a map. I mean, we started as a psychedelic jam band, and we morphed into a pop grunge band, into a dark entity, into a goth electro band, <laughs> into an even darker goth band. And every time we would do it, people would be like, what's wrong with you, you know? <laughs> and we were just like, it's fun. It's like, it's, it's a form of dress up, right? Yeah. Musical identity is as, form of, is, is as fun as dressing up. That's why I don't dress up for Halloween, because I'm in Halloween the other 364 <laughs> the days out of the year. <laughs> you are at a point in your career where your body of work is so good and successful, it's gold. You could easily ride that wave and just tour every once in a while. You could also ride the wave of nostalgia for the, for the people out there that don't want to let the 90s go. But you have chosen instead, which is very, uh, from what I know, very much like you is to ambitiously step into your next chapter, which brings me to Autumn. When you wrote Melancholy, did you see the arc already that would end at Autumn? Was the was it all planned out? No. No? No. I had such a negative reaction to, and I'm gonna say this very loosely, fame. Okay. It was so weird to me, right? Because I saw where fame for other people was this really cool thing. And I don't need to name the names, but you know the names of our generation where it was like, I like you being weird and the way you are. That's a good thing. With us, it was like, yeah, you're famous, but you're still weird, and it's not a good thing. <laughs> so it was the double whammy of like, you know, you go to the Italian restaurant, and grandma wanted to come out of the kitchen and talk to you at 75 years old, and you're like, well, this is wild. <laughs> but then there were all these other people who were like, well, you're not this, and you're not, you know, again, same, yeah. same quote, right? So... Melancholy was my way of saying, I'm gonna hide behind this personality of zero. And uh, when I shaved my head and, and I started wearing the zero shirt, which I guess I'm still wearing. Yes, um, correct. It worked in this weird, magical way. It allowed me to be somebody that I was, but wasn't courageous enough to be on stage. And conversely, the audience seemed to gravitate towards that cartoon character. And so I was like, oh, wow, this is actually working. This is kind of cool. And so I really leaned into it. And the songs on Melancholy were an extension of that sort of like 
I can be whoever I want to be today. I don't have to be who I was yesterday or who you want me to be tomorrow. And that you can see, particularly around that period, I think the band released 57 songs in two years. Yes. I mean, we just had this massive explosion of creativity. It was glorious. It was like Christmas every day. Yeah, it was really fun. And um, so when we got around to Machina and I announced um, quite infamously on K-Rock with Tammy, <laughs> May 23rd, 2000, that the band was breaking wow. up. Um, you know, and you know, I'm, I'm a little sick, so I thought it was funny, Rick. Like, I announced the band was breaking up on K-Rock. I might as well die on K-Rock, too, <laughs> which is why I'm here. I'm actually going to die Talk today. about a full circle moment. We don't want that. We don't want that. But um, when we got around to Machina and the band had decided internally to break up, but then the album became about, well, is there a way we can do this in a creative way? And hence the costumes and the weirdness. And the band, of course, agreed to all this as a concept and then quickly abandoned it. So I was the only one living this weird... Yeah. And if, if anybody um, cares to know, the whole concept that we had agreed to was the band had become such a caricature of herself that we were actually going to play the caricatures of ourselves. Oh, wow. <laughs> so we were, if, if everybody thought we were bloated, insane rock stars, we were going to be bloated, gonna... insane rock stars. Yeah. And everybody agreed to it. And then once we started doing interviews, the band was like, I'm no. not doing that. But oh, I was still doing it. <laughs> so I looked really insane. And they looked kind of actually more normal. In, in, and so... So yeah, so with the, when the band broke up in 2000, um, at the end of the year, um, you know, I never thought there would be a third act. But as soon as James came back to the band, I started thinking about this crazy idea I had about an artist in exile, and uh, I pitched it to the band at the beginning of James coming back, and everybody just kind of went, mm, sounds like a lot of work. Did you know that it would bookend those two albums, or was it ever was was there ever a point that it could have been just like its own conceptual thing? No, it's it's chapter three of the. It's story. chapter three of the. Yeah, story. so we go from zero to glass on Machina, and this is shiny. This is the third chapter of this character that I started playing around ninety four, ninety five. How different is this character from zero? Now that you've you've grown, you've evolved, you've experienced things. Like, is has the character as well? Well, zero. Um, believed he could change the world um, by uh, Machina uh, Glass realized he couldn't change the world that it was going to destroy him and then Shiny 20 years later knows that he can't change the world um, and the story actually revolves around somebody accepting I don't have as much power as I think I do um, yes I've made beautiful things and it's beautiful but I'm, I'm not that powerful I just kind of want to do what I'm going to do and um, and I think there's something beautiful about that there because Look, when you're 20 and, and you're on MTV every 19 seconds and stuff, I mean, it's easy to get whacked out and think that, you know, because you talk about, I don't know, cows or something, like everyone's going to listen. <laughs> and there's something beautiful about that, and it is more for youth. But I think as you get older, you start to have a deeper respect for people with different opinions, uh, different perspectives. And you also start to know that, uh, or realize, you should at that point realize that the, that the world is, is a much more complicated place as, as far as it involves power and dynamics and governments. And now, of course, we talk almost every day about censorship and Twitter and Elon. And, you know, these are all subjects that are very much um, kind of in our face at a daily level. So I'm glad I figured out long ago that my voice is just one voice in a, in a much more uh, profound and big chorus. And I'm happy to be part of that chorus. It doesn't bother me. I'm okay with it. But I also don't walk around thinking that if I tweet something or say something like 
an army's going to rise up yeah. and somehow that's fair. fix that's the world fair. via K-Rock. You know? That's fair. That's fair. I want you all to experience Autumn Act 1 for yourself, so I'm not going to inject my opinion other than it's really, really, really good. There's one moment on the record that surprised me, sonically surprised me, and that's the song Hooray, yeah. because I wasn't expecting a celestial disco dance party. Like towards the, It's a disco dance party, and you don't expect that from the Smashing Pumpkins. It's my favorite song on the album as of now. Oh, thank you. But what, it's just so much fun. It makes me feel good and roll the windows down kind of song and I didn't expect that from you did that surprise you when you wrote it no because in the story um, and if anybody's been listening to my podcast I've been explaining the story each song but in that particular song these kids who are sort of in danger they find this robot in an old amusement park like think of Disneyland all run down and they're able to access this robot um, via this information that they have. So that's the robot's signature song. Okay, it's awesome. And I saw Electrical Main Street Parade in 1974 at Disneyland. And it I still have a very like profound memory of yeah. watching that go by. And so if you listen to that song, that's me doing my version of Electrical Main Street Parade. It completely sounds like that. Like if that parade had a soundtrack or one song that you want to play, it's... Sung by a robot, though. It's sung by a robot, though. Yeah, it's hooray. Um, I also want to talk about, there was an interview, something you said intrigued me, I think it was Guitar World, where you talk about how Black Sabbath was your blueprint and you spent your whole life chasing that sound. Yep. But in chasing that sound, you very much found a Smashing Pumpkin sound, the Smashing Pumpkin sound. If you play a Smashing Pumpkin song, just two seconds, anywhere, people will automatically go, that's Smashing Pumpkins. Not Smashing Pumpkins trying to be nothing. So are you still chasing? Oh, yeah. Yeah? The Black Sabbath sound? Oh, yeah. What is it about that sound that you feel like you have not reached or accomplished or that's so intriguing to you? Well, I think we all have those memories when we're young, when a certain thing makes us feel a certain way. And the first time I ever listened to Black Sabbath, I was eight years old. My uncle was a drummer. Um, he passed away very young, but he had this cool stereo and a bunch of progressive rock records like Yes and Jethro Tull. And the first record in the pile was Black Sabbath Master of Reality. And I said to my grandmother at eight, hey, can I play something on a stereo? She gave me that look like, I'm going to get in big trouble from your uncle. Yeah. And I talked her into it, basically just a little bit um, older than my son is right now. And um, the first song was Sweet Leaf. You know, you hear the Ozzy's cough or whatever, and then that sound comes in. And I was just like, it made me feel as if I was steering into the cosmos or something. Yeah, yeah, I know. I don't feeling. know how else to explain other than I, I felt this kind of sense of agape, like, yeah, I know the wow, feeling. this is what God sounds like. Yep, you know what I, I mean? know the feeling well. So it's the eight-year-old version of what God sounds like, but I've never found anything cooler. That's amazing. This I could talk to him for hours, but I, I'm going to eventually have to let him go. This has nothing to do with music. This is just like a personal curiosity and for satisfaction. Um, if you were to put a bunch of rock stars and artists in a lineup, and be like, one of them likes wrestling, I would immediately take him out. I mean, it's not Billy Corgan, it's Weird Al Yankovic is the one. And yet, you love it, and I'm a wrestling baby, so I just wanted to know when you got indoctrinated into that world, because I'm an Andre the Giant Junkyard Dog era girl. Yes. Yeah, you remember them? Of course, I mean, they, they both work for the NWA, which is the company that I own um, since 1948. It's a, it's a great honor, but um, I used to watch wrestling with my great-grandmother who was in her 80s from Belgium, barely spoke English, and my grandfather in his 60s. And so at five years old, I would watch these people scream at me through the television, and it obviously made an impression on me. Obviously. <laughs> um, I, I kind of look at the wrestling thing as like, um, it falls under the category of um, 
there's if you don't have any reason to not live your dreams, then you should live your dreams. And so oh. I don't know why one of my dreams is to work in professional wrestling, but <laughs> it's crazy. But I think the thing I'm most proud of, besides the fact that I've sort of brought the NWA back from the dead, is that in wrestling, most people don't see me as Billy Corgan, the musician. They yeah. just know me as Billy Corgan in wrestling. So I've had to earn my respect and operate in the world. And not everybody agrees with my perspective on wrestling, just like they don't agree with <laughs> my perspective in rock and roll. But that's okay. But that's why I always say it's like, I just tell people, like, a lot of people pull you aside in an airport and say, like, what's the magic sauce of life? It's just like, yeah. you got to live your dream. Yeah, that's it. It's and, as simple and, as that. And some of the best people I've ever met are, like, amazing nurses or amazing firemen or... You know what I mean? People who are super committed to what they believe in, that's always humbling. Yeah. And so I don't want to be, especially, I have very young kids, seven and four. I don't want them to look at me as somebody who should have done something or didn't do something. I always want them to think, well, dad did what he believed in, even if it's insane. Yeah. <laughs> Insanity is fun. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's worked out well for me, you know. So um, he's basically, he's saying, you do you, boo. And that's like, honestly, the best advice is like, you do you, who cares what everybody else is thinking or saying, just live your dreams. Just to interrupt. So we have yeah. a saying in our world, because I also have a tea house, um, sorrow is the family business. Sorrow is the family business. The Corgan family business, business is sorrow. <laughs> Before I let you go, um, I also want to say one more thing about Autumn and Smashing Pumpkins Now. Your guitar work lately is on fucking fire. Like, mm. just beguiled. And I think it's... Um, Beyond the Beyond the Veil. Thank you. Okay, so Beyond the Veil. Like it's just it's just it, you sound better than ever. And oh, it's thank you. it's incredible. Um, the last thing I will say, Sunday night I went to see Elton John's last show at Dodger Stadium and I watched this beautiful man go through his body of work very sentimentally and whatnot and then say goodbye. Do you think that you're at a legacy point yet where you think about what you wanna leave behind? Or are you any close to satisfaction? All the time. Okay, cool. Do you have a general idea about? Yes, I do. A, do you, are you going to share it with me? No. Okay, cool. <laughs> I didn't think so. Um, I just want to say I hope that K-Rock at the end of the day has a special place in your heart, and I think you're cool enough. You are an institution, Billy Corgan. Oh, thank an you. An institution. Thank you. I'm going to give you guys the man you came to see. Again, let's hear it for Billy Corgan.